0: It felt like you either die fighting for the country or you live and die because of something else of all the things that were happening. So people quite literally had nothing to lose as the youth and they had to fight this fight because nobody else was going to fight it.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Declarations. My name is Muna and I will be your host. Today, we're going to talk about Sudan, in particular, women's rights in Sudan, social media activism, and the recent Sudanese revolution. And I'm joined by two wonderful, amazing Sudanese women, Aida Abashar and Danan Al-Assad. Aida Abishar is a Sudanese-American social policy research officer based in Nairobi. She holds an MPhil in Development Studies from the University of Cambridge. Her research interests primarily focus on Sudanese political history and social protection in Sudan during the current transitional period. But Dinan al assad is a 22 year old Sudanese international student in London. She was born and raised in Khartoum and relocated to Toronto in 2017 and then to London in 2019 to pursue university degrees. Dinan is interested in reading and speaking about Sudanese social politics, history, poetry, and art. Dinan and Aida, thank you so much for joining us today for what is set to be such a wonderful and insightful discussion and one that is especially dear to my heart because if our listeners don't already know, I'm actually half Sudanese. So this is something that I'm particularly and personally actually interested
2: in discussing. Yeah, so my name is Aida Bashar. I'm currently a social policy research officer, um, and I specialize in the areas of social protection. I am also somebody who has spent most of my undergraduate and graduate life um, working on issues pertaining to Sudan's history and politics, um, specifically Sudanese political history, um, the impact of the Sudanese Communist Party and the uprisings that happened in 1964 and 1985 as well so I'm really excited to be part of this podcast thank you for
0: having me thank you for joining us Um, my name is Daniel al I was born and raised in Khartoum um, and um, I left in 2017 for university I studied civil engineering for two years at the University of Toronto and then transferred over here to the UK um, where I study economics and math I'm I've always been interested in Sudanese politics um, especially uh, the issues related to Sudanese women. Um, I'm in no capacity and an official activist or someone who um, specializes in this field, but um, it's shaped who I am and everything I do is driven by, by my passion for Sudanese politics and the issues concerning Sudanese women. So this is very much something that I'm very passionate about.
1: Great. Thank you, ladies, for joining us today. I think this will be a really interesting and insightful discussion. I'd just like to give our listeners a little bit of background information. So we are talking about, you know, the 2018, late 2018, early 2019, Sudanese revolution, Um, obviously a monumental time for Sudanese people all over the world. Omar al-Bashir, you know, a dictator for 30 years was ousted from power and we now have a Transitionary Military Council can you ladies tell us a little bit more about the Sudanese revolution? Sort of what happened, um, why it was such a big deal. I mean, it's it's quite obvious that it was a big deal, and it should be for many many reasons. But in, in your in your views and your opinions, why it was such an important moment?
0: Um, I think it was. I, I think the reason this particular wave of, of revolt was so important is because we actually got somewhere. Um, I feel like we, there's always been. Waves of revolution that were that were cracked down upon very harshly, and um, no real results were seen. And this time, it was uh, such a it, it was sustained, and um, people kept coming back and rising up again. And Ahmed Bashir was ousted, and that's that that was monumental. And especially because so many of the people who were marching had never known um, a, a life where Ahmed Bashir wasn't president, because he had been there for thirty years most of the people who were marching were so much younger than that. So it felt like something a miraculous almost happened.
2: No, I completely agree. And just picking, piggybacking off of that as well, just the fact that the revolution well started outside of Khartoum is something that I think was incredibly significant. Um, like Dinan said, it was led by the youth, um, and it was completely grassroots in so many ways. I think that had such a big impact on why it lasted so long and why people kept the the momentum up for as long as they did.
1: And why do you think why do you think that it was such a youth led youth based movement?
0: I think the older generation have gotten to a point where they're so apathetic and this is something my father speaks about. They've sort of accepted and became complacent and decided that, you know what, there's no way that, out of this. And even when the revolution was first starting, so many of them were being so cynical and pessimistic and saying that, oh, you know, we're never going to get anywhere. They've, And it's because they've suffered. They've really and truly and honestly suffered under this regime. And um, they, they're they exhausted. And it felt like the youth were fighting for a future for themselves. Um, it's, it had gotten to a point where if you wanted to if you wanted to live a dignified life, you had to scramble and find a way to get out of Sudan. Not everybody has that privilege, and even those who did have that privilege were struggling and suffering to 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 be um to be okay living outside of Sudan. Sudanese culture is very distinct, and that is why culture shock is such a big deal for us when we leave. And the loneliness that comes with living abroad was was absolutely terrible for those who left. And um, the ones who stayed were facing so many barriers and it seemed like there was there are no jobs, um, people can barely graduate because of how often the university strikes, and um, how how little infrastructure we had in every single way.
2: And also demographically, Sudan's population is majority youth. Um, and if you're somebody under 30 in Sudan, you've never known a president besides Amir Bashir. I want people to actually just kind of step back and think about that for a second. You've known nothing besides that regime. Um, and as Dinan said, it was if you were privileged enough to leave the country, that is what a lot of people did. Um, but for the vast majority of Sudanese people, had to deal with the econo- the constant economic crisis, um, political turbulence consistently, um, and that's also without even mentioning the conflicts that were created by this regime outside of Khartoum, um, and so. As we had said before, I do think that this is a central factor as to why the revolution was so successful in overthrowing the dictators because it was youth-led. Um, it was the people, the older people who have become apathetic towards the regime and just sort of were letting whatever happen happen, did take a did have to like kind of take a step back, and the youth really jumped into that power vacuum um, and took control of the situation.
1: And Ida, I remember you you mentioned that it was not from the center,
0: so it was from outside of Khartoum. Why? Why do you, why do you guys think that is? Um, I think the the reason is, I mean, it, it makes sense in the sense that Khartoum always got the, the I don't know if this is an actual saying, but the longest end of the stick. Um, so most of the funding that came from the government for any type of in- infrastructure went to Khartoum. Khartoum is a lot more developed than all the other parts. Not only that, but there's so much violence outside of Khartoum and um, there's so little resources. Um, even Things like schooling, things like roads. Um, there were people who, who had... So so the funding was cut so short for schools that people often had to ride boats over to the next village or the next town for school. And so many kids ended up drowning and dying in the Nile for that. So there's so much pain and so much suffering that is happening outside of Khartoum and it started with school children they were the marching started because of the fact that their their school meals had doubled i think in price and because of inflation and they they started marching and they burned down the the NCP um, headquarters i think it was atbara i'm not sure it was white Nile state and that's that's sort of where where it started and that makes sense because whatever was bad in Khartoum was terrible outside of it
2: yeah, I think Khartoum as well, like, it really has an upper middle class people that live in Khartoum as well. Khartoum has truly profited off of the backs of people that live outside of Khartoum. The previous regime has been was extremely extractive. Um, everything that it, it would just take from outside of Khartoum, give to Khartoum and give nothing back. Um, and that was something that we continuously saw happening over the last thirty years. Something that fueled civil wars um, and continued to marginalize specific groups. So that's why I don't necessarily find it surprising that it's the uprising started outside of Khartoum in the way that it did. It is important to also recognize that Khartoum did become also an extremely important hub for the rest of the revolution, as urban capitals often do, um, and. The sit-ins that, the sit-in that we saw at the military headquarters and things like that also was a big pronunciation of that, um, of just sort of like that togetherness that people talk about a lot when they talk about the revolution in Sudan. So it did, I don't think it would have succeeded in the way that it did if it didn't come to Khartoum. But I think what people really need to recognize is that, and especially during this current transitional period, is that we can't forget about places outside of Khartoum. The current transitional process cannot be Khartoum-centric or else it's not going to succeed, Um, or else it's going to fall into that pattern that the previous regime had already started.
1: And, you know, thank you guys. That was a very good, you know, summary of of what's been going on in the background. I'd like to bring it towards sort of talking about women and women's rights in Sudan. So can we give our listeners sort of a little bit more information on how women's bodies were policed during the Bashir regime? So, So talking about, you know, the morality police, Sharia law and the interplay
0: of that with how women were able to live. Um so under the regime there was um a Nizam al law, which is public order and that gave police officers the um so it was under their discretion to decide what exactly disrupted public order and what was obscene and what was inappropriate. And that ended up becoming a campaign um a really misogynistic campaign in which these police officers would decide would would be able to dictate what women wore, how they were, even if they were laughing too loudly in public, if they were um, doing something that they deemed inappropriate, um, they would immediately be arrested. They were flogged, um, and it, it became really just like a, a witch hunt for for women who who belonged to lo- like lower socioeconomic groups were um were targeted, and you couldn't you couldn't wear things that could put you on the radar of of the police. So every morning you'd wake up and decide what to wear based off of, like, what would an average Sudanese policeman think is inappropriate? You know what I mean? What would hold in court? And uh, having that self-awareness and cautiousness be part of your daily routine as very, very, very young girls is incredibly traumatic. And that just goes to show you how much women's bodies were policed. And they also targeted tea ladies, women who... Who were for, forced to work in um, in situations that exposed them a lot more to policemen and have a, a singular policeman having that much power, obviously just reinforced so much of, of what the patriarchy stands for and oppressed women so much, and um, that was just I guess one way. Um, and I, I it's my favorite example to use because it really goes to show you how much everyone was allowed to police what women did and what women wore, um, and obviously under an Islamic fundamentalist regime. Women really did suffer on so many levels.
1: And you mentioned the tea ladies. I've heard about the tea ladies a lot. Can we could we let our listeners know just a little bit about who what tea ladies are, who they are, and where they are?
0: <laughs> yeah. So um, I I think it's very unique to Sudan in that way. But Sita Sha is basically an or a tea lady. Um, is a woman who has um, I guess a booth um, on on the road. It's it's usually in. in any, next to offices um, on the street so she has stools and a table usually and she serves tea and it's it's a place of social gatherings usually um, it's mostly men who go to tea ladies there's a lot of them on Nile Street they um, it, it's, it's sort of like you know how people in the west vent to the bartender people also like vent to the tea lady I guess um, and uh, tea ladies are such an important core part of Sudanese culture in the sense that people will go to the tea lady for lunch, for example, during their lunch hour to have tea in the gamat. Um, they offer like various other things, but they're also like the least protected workers in, in Sudan. They've unionized now and they're part of the Sudanese Professional Association. Um, and, and there's a lot more effort to protect them. But before that, they were just... Like the the main target for the police, like they would they would do they would do raids and then they would just arrest them in masses and because they're evading taxes even though they make very little money, um, so they were just they were the target of so much like so much oppression and abuse from the police and it was just ridiculous. So I'm happy to see that they're now unionizing and being protected a bit more, but obviously there's a long way to go.
1: And you mentioned that the the morality police would sort of arrest women for even laughing too loudly. Was this, obviously it was specifically targeted towards women, but was there a similar sort of, um, you know, policing of youth or young men as well? Was this a specific, was specifically targeted towards women or was it anyone who was sort of acting out of order as the police
0: would say? It was so arbitrary. Like if you if you were a man and you had long hair and they thought that was inappropriate, they would shave your head. Um, I remember we had an event one time. It was like an open mic night and they shut it down because people were speaking in English. Like it was so arbitrary and mm-hmm. it was just it, it, like whatever they felt was inappropriate on whims, they would just shut things down. And giving like Sudanese men that much power, just there was no context where it would have ended well.
1: Yeah. So this was under the guise of Sharia law and, you know, public morals and how people should act and act in private and act in public. How how do you believe, what do you think the, you know, Sudanese people thought of Sharia? I've heard a lot of conflicting different opinions on Sharia being, you know, good, bad, useful, tradition, culture. I'd like to know your ladies, sort of like, what are your opinions on Sharia law and sort of, what you think about our new sort of transitionary military council and it sort of moving away from that Sorry, i'm
2: just I'm just thinking because it's a very what do you think of Sharia law is just a <laughs> it's a very i don't know deep question um I mean I also want to recognize like my own kind of positionality with relation to this question i'm not somebody who who has like lived in sudan um I'm sudanese but i've never I, actually live there. So I'm I'm not one to talk about like the impacts of Sharia law on me personally. Um, And even if I was to have lived in Sudan, even the times I do go to Sudan, I go quite frequently. um, I do also recognize my status as somebody who is not necessarily going to be bearing the brunt of like these public order laws that were under the Bashir regime as much as um, other women. Because as Dinan had mentioned earlier, it's definitely something that is, it's extremely classist. It's extremely racist. um, And it really, the way it was implemented by the previous regime really showed how it took advantage of the most vulnerable women um, in society who weren't protected by the state in the manner that a lot of like sort of upper middle class women in Khartoum would be protected by the state. Um, But Dinan, if you want to jump in sort of and give your opinion as well, somebody who's lived there.
0: Yeah, I absolutely well, agree with there. you that it was that it's incredibly classist because the Sudanese people who are uh, the upper class sort of Khartoum's elite are living the exact same way they'd be living if they lived in London. Like they're they're living as if Sharia law doesn't exist. They're completely immune to so much of of what the what the state perpetuates, and the opinions on Sharia law vary very much. Um, now people are starting to realize that. The, the version of the Sharia law that the that the government speaks about is very has very little to do with what what the religion actually is because before that religious more religious families would would be um, in agreement sort of with what was happening and it would be sort of a situation where it's like well you know they're they're only doing what Allah asked and I think that's a very easy way to excuse so much of the the bad things that they were doing is by saying oh you know what that's what Allah would have wanted so um it's, you know, it has to be this way. But more and more people are realizing that that's not really where, where it comes from and um, are realizing that it's not necessarily the government's job to, to make sure the citizens go to heaven. Um, and opinion, I think, is, is changing a lot. But there's definitely a lot of elders who still hold on to it. And there's definitely a lot of people who are now saying... This new liberal government is going to take us all to hell, and you know, see what they're doing. They're they're allowing alcohol into the country, et cetera. So, I think there's a lot of conflicting opinions, but more and more, the mean like the mean opinion, the average opinion, is starting to to drift more towards what I think is the truth, or the fact that it, it's not the government's job to get citizens into heaven, and whatever version of religion that they spew is not really um, what Allah would have wanted. <laughs>
2: And I think also just kind of tying it back to this theme of violence, it's something that's been explored in um, in a lot of scholarship about how Bashir's regime used Islam as a way to perpetuate violence against non-Muslims throughout the country, um, and used Sharia as the excuse as to why they need to perpetuate violence against specific groups. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of unlearning in Sudan about, about all of that, about how in certain ways, um, ideas or beliefs can be used to perpetuate violence against others. Um, how that's unjust, and how we need to really separate the reality from that, um, and the like, and the rhetoric that was used in order to justify like some extremely awful actions that was perpetuated by the previous government.
1: And you know, speaking of unlearning, this has been a profound year with a lot of time for a lot of people for reflection, do you both see a lot of unlearning occurring amongst Sudanese young people, Sudanese youth?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, there's been a lot, personally for me and a lot of the people that I um, that run in the same cir- circles as me, there's been a lot of reflection about the privileges that we have. and. I I was hoping for a bit more reflection from Sudanese men about the privilege that they hold and the ways in which they perpetuate the patriarchy. Um, There has been some, but obviously it's not enough because we're still here. Um, But I think it's been a a very important year in the sense that a lot of us had to sit down and reflect on the ways in which we, we contribute to the oppression of people who don't hold the same privileges as us and things even like occupying spaces that we shouldn't and, and having our voices be heard in, in in places where so many voices like ours have been heard before. Um, and um, also just thinking about how much of our identities have been formed by um, the, the environment that we grew up in. For me, that was a huge part of this year, just thinking about what is actually me and what is uh, like al Bashir, to be honest. So. I think it's definitely been a year of reflection.
1: That's that's really interesting. Um, could you elaborate on that? So, what did you find was actually you know the government versus your own personal beliefs?
0: Um, I found fa- I found that so much of who, because of so much of who I am had been shaped by being surrounded by so much wrong and corruption. Um, so much, uh, so many of my personal goals were reactionary in the sense that I wanted to, for example, study civil engineering because I was. I was very upset by the infrastructure problems that we had, the fact that every single August, it, the Nile would flood and, and the entire country would stop and it would impact the economy, it would impact children, people would die because their houses couldn't um, withstand the the floods and, and the rain. And when I, when I actually reflected on it, I didn't like civil engineering. I was just so hurt by... Um, by the pain that was caused by this lack of infrastructure that I convinced myself that that's something that I that I wanted to do. That and so much of, of the cultural shaming and, and this this idea that you you have to act a certain way and all the respectability that came with, with the public order police. Because so much of what you were asked not to do wasn't because you held it as a belief. It was because you didn't want to be like picked up in, in, in the pickup truck and um, taken to the police station. So... There's definitely a lot of respectability to unlearn and a lot of um, reactionary stances that I took that I that I needed to unlearn to just be true to myself. And and I'm happy that I have the, the ability to do that because I know a lot of people don't and have to sort of just live in that.
1: And speaking of, you know, women and women having to unlearn so many things in Sudan, there has been a huge history of women speaking up and, you know, involving themselves in activist movements. You know, and we've had various manifestations of that. So we had more, you know, I would say potentially conservative. So like Fatima Ahmed Ibrahim um, and the Sudanese Communist Party. What are your views and opinions on that? So the history of Sudanese women and their activity in politics. And how do you see that going now? I know there's been a lot of talk of women sort of being excluded from the conversation and not really being represented as such, which is ironic because women were really fighting for this revolution. So I just like to sort of talk a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah, I think, um, well, I guess just some historical context, Sudan has had um, other uprisings as well. The one in 2019 was not the first one. There was one in 1964 that brought down Ibrahim Aboud's regime. And then there was one in 1985 that brought down Jafar and Imeri. Both were popular uprisings. And during both uprisings, women were at the forefront Um, just as they were in the 2019 revolution. Um, So this is, I just kind of also want to dismantle that dialogue that was kind of perpetuated throughout the media of like, oh, look, Sudanese women are protesting. Look at them. They're getting their rights. Like, they're telling the police that... They can't do anything. Like, women have always been at the forefront. Um, and that goes, that falls also into the, like, the discussion we kind of had about marginalized groups and marginalized groups wanting to come to the forefront because they have felt the brunt of this regime um, more than other people may have and in different ways as well. And so I personally find it quite disappointing to see that there hasn't been a fantastic representation of women within the current transitional government. Um, However, at the same time, I think it's important to ensure that, like, we're also not using that to discount the efforts that women did to be where they are now, or to that they were massive forces in this current, in this revolution, and in the transitional, and in paving the way for this transitional government, um, just as they were in the past.
1: Why do you think women are underrepresented in our current transitionary government?
0: Um, I think a lot of it is because there and I think this happens in every single movement where people are just like, oh, we'll talk about this once we resolve it, like that, this idea that we need to handle the main issue and then we can handle the the side issues. And when when the transitional government was being elected or um, I, I, I don't particularly know how it happened, I think it was very much people just electing people that they know, which is a whole other issue. But um when when that was happening people were just like let us let us solve our economic problems and then we can start talking about women's rights let us um get out of the the terror sponsoring list and then talk about women's problems when in reality all of these issues are very much tied to each other and um we can't really liberate uh, the, the general people without liberating the women and people have made this sort of a side issue when it really is a main issue for a lot of sudanese women and uh, i think there's so much and misogyny and in, in our culture that we haven't unlearned so much that we inherited from the regime and so much that we just, that, that we that seeped into our culture from Arabization and so much that is probably just inherent because the world is a sexist place. But um, now people, even the women who were elected and the women who are in this transitional government have been bullied online in ways that are just absolutely brutal. Anything, everything from respectability to reducing them to their looks to um, just slandering them, left, right and center for absolutely no reason. So not only are are there so few women who are in positions of power now, but those who are in positions of power, th- looking at how they're treated. If I was a young girl and I wanted to be in a position of power one day, I would be completely demotivated um, to, to go down that path. So it just feels like there's there's problems from every single side when it comes to women's representation in the government.
1: You mentioned Arabization can you tell our listeners sort of a little bit about what that is what that encompasses and what you mean by that
0: um so a, a key part of of what alishi's government did um was Arabize Sudan and I do not quote me on any of this because I'm not a I'm not a historian in any way I'm just passionate and I read about this quite a bit but um there was there was uh, there were efforts to sort of unite all the different Sudanese tribes and come together under this blanket of arabization so A lot of people now don't speak their their mother tongues, they speak Arabic. And in Khartoum, because the the official language was Arabic, everyone had to learn Arabic. So all of these different people who came from different parts of Sudan all came together in Khartoum. And for you to be successful in any way, you had to speak Arabic. So there was so much erasure of all of the other different cultures. that were there. I'm not really sure where it, where it like where it absolutely stems from because there's also the history of the Arab slave trade in Sudan, as well as the the Anglo Egyptian rule um, and so on. But and maybe Aida knows a bit more about this. Um, but I think the Arabization for me is is just sort of the the erasure of all of the other indigenous cultures in Sudan and um, us sort of becoming part of the Arab League and, and having a new flag that looks like the Arab the Arab flags and and us sort of being puppeted by Saudi Arabia in a lot of ways.
2: And when Dinan says erasure, she means literal erasure, as in like physical, violent erasure, um, besides the cultural erasure that came through that. We saw that happening throughout all the country, throughout the entire country during Bashir's rule. Um, and then that kind of goes back to everything we were saying about unlearning, and unlearning those, um, those that Arabization that we were taught that perpetuates like how we see other groups and also if we tie it back to women it's also like how we see women so a lot of the things that we see about women currently in power, the transitional government that might like reduce them down to their looks has a lot to do with how light their skin is or how arab they look or how their hair looks or how long it is and those type of aspects um and again that t- that's that's going to take a lot of unpacking to do that's not something that this transitional government is going to be able to just solve in the 22 months 22 yeah like 22 months that it has um, to before it hands it over to a civilian government. Um, and that's something I just wanted to flag too, is the fact that we're living in a reality where 30 years of violent oppressive rule has to be uprooted. Um, and there's a lot of patience and a lot of, again, the theme of unlearning that comes with that too.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's really interesting. I mean, I think we see this all throughout the global South, right? It's this it's this remnant of colonialism, it's colorism, it's an inferiority complex, it's it's these deep-seated issues that a lot of us have had to unlearn and sort of unpack and deal with. And I think that's also been brought to light now this year, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement and protests and people actually being bold and having those conversations with each other. Um, and the Black Lives Matter movement as well brought social media to the forefront of everyone's mind in terms of activism. And social media was actually quite big um in terms of the Sudanese revolution especially amongst the diaspora so i'd like to talk a little bit about that so talking about you know Allah, Salah, the the you know the symbol sort of her being a symbol or her not perhaps being a symbol what you ladies think about that and then you know campaigns such as blue for mutter and all the social media campaigns that sort of emerged
0: um i think the diaspora played a, a very important role um and that was one of the moments where I was so grateful for the fact that people people who leave Sudan are still very connected to Sudan. Most of the young people who, who leave Sudan are still very connected to it. And that's something that a lot of other um, people from a lot of other countries really can't say. And that's something that really was beneficial for us, especially when the internet blackout happened. So in in June, um, when the, the June 3rd massacre happened and afterwards there was internet the internet blackout, I was back home, I was in Sudan. And there was no way for us to sort of uh, Sudanese people in Sudan were always very very capable of making the noise that they needed to make, and uh, the internal blackout happening and that being taken away from us was very harmful and such a crucial uh, part of the revolution because the the massacre was really probably the most horrible thing that had happened up until that point throughout this wave this particular wave of the of the revolution. So for us to have this big of an injustice happened and then not be able to use our voices was just twice as horrible. Um, and I remember um, the I feel like everyone who Sudanese outside of Sudan dropped everything and made this their mission. Like when the internet came back and we all went back to social media, we didn't we we were shook. Like we were shocked to see how much of how much people shook the table and how much people had made, had painted everywhere that the color blue quite literally and how how much people had how much noise people had made and i i was sending like like actual text messages from from my phone to friends who were outside of sudan and they were tweeting updates and the support and the stance that people took was very very um beneficial because otherwise we would have lost so much momentum when that happened and I think that was the the goal that was the aim of the internet blackout to make sure that we we lost momentum but we didn't and if anything momentum was doubled and that was very much a um a revival of of people's um people's resolve to get to get these people out of here and even before the internet blackout is being as somebody
2: who was outside of sudan went for the majority of the revolution, um, people in the diaspora definitely stepped up uh, with regards to just kind of raising awareness and having discussions um, within the spaces and circles that they occupied. Um, And they ensured that... I I didn't also notice kind of like a conscious unlearning um, by quite a lot of people about how about their own positionalities as Sudanese people in the diaspora and what they can contribute and what is right to contribute, what isn't. That being said, there's obviously that tension between the diaspora and people back at home of, of people kind of overstepping um, where they can't speak and what experiences they are dealing with. And that's something that not only the Sudanese diaspora, but I think every diaspora sort of needs to critically um, deconstruct. Uh, but at the same time, I was really proud overall of how we kind of came together Um, before the internet blackout, during the internet blackout, after. Um, It was definitely, and again, the diaspora was also extremely youth-led. We did see a lot of youth stepping to the forefront of that too.
1: So what social media platforms were mainly used? Were there any, you know, hashtags that really stood out? And what was the context behind, you know, Blue for Mutter and that story for those who don't know
0: um so I think it was mainly Twitter I I think that was the main platform that's always been the platform um where like Sudanese at least like whenever something happened we would go to Twitter there would be a hashtag and you know um I I personally was doing a lot of translation work and um a lot of the 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 news came from Twitter it was used as a as we organized on Twitter as well as um, like gave updates on Twitter, but also WhatsApp was a big part of it. So neighborhood committees were a big were a big part of um, the uh, the organizing that happened happened mostly in neighborhood committees. So there is always like group el hilla, so like a WhatsApp chat dedicated to um, the people in the neighborhood, and that that was a lot of things. So that's where people organized to sort of march, like to get together and march. It was also where um there were updates about places that had militias stationed so you can avoid them um there were also just just random things that, that the youth had to do because the government wasn't doing it so things like taking care of of littering getting rid of um like they were very much doing everything the municipality had to do um in in those group chats but also when people went on civil disobedience the group chats made sure that the people who were working on daily wages were compensated so there was a lot of um there was a lot of work in the sense that the, the rich people from those areas would cover expenses for the for the people who worked daily wages to make sure that nobody w- went hungry or nobody suffered because of um the stance that they were taking so i think it was mainly whatsapp and twitter that that were the platforms
1: is there why do you think that is is there something you know unique about Sudanese individuals and whatsapp Sudan and whatsapp Sudan and
0: twitter i'm not sure um i think with twitter it's always been the case i feel like twitter has always been where like even back in 2010 2013 2012 whenever there was um something that was happening it was always whatsapp and twitter i think those are just the the two platforms that most sudanese people use um i i would say there there's a lot of sudanese people on whatsapp uh lesser twitter um but there's a lot of people on WhatsApp and Twitter is just light and easy to use, even when you could text to a number to tweet. That was also useful. I think that was a big aspect of it. Um, So whenever it was blocked, people would use that. Um, yeah, so I, I'm not sure what the reasoning is behind it, but those have always been the two that people use.
2: I think there's also a bit of a generational divide, too, though, because I did notice the older generation used Facebook quite a bit. Um as a way to get their news or to post about the revolution. Um, but a lot of younger people, it was very much just Twitter, as Dinan said.
1: Was there any fear in terms of government surveillance? So a lot of people in Sudan were obviously fearful of being monitored, but did that fear translate to people in the diaspora? Was there a sort of you know apprehension about, oh, I don't want to you know, do something in such a way. I don't want to be monitored. I don't want to be arrested.
2: Do you think there was that type of fear? Um, I can only speak for myself. Uh, I didn't have that fear um, just because I felt incredibly privileged to even be in a position where I could speak out in the way that I could. and I could organize and mobilize in the way that I could. Um, For me, it was always more about just getting the word out about what was going on in Sudan as opposed to um, anything else. I don't really think the government has like the capacity also <laughs> to be watching people of the diaspora in that way, but I think I know for myself and for a lot of my friends that was never really the priority or like the initial concern.
0: I think I think that was definitely. The, I don't really identify as someone who's part of the diaspora just because I, I like I recognize the fact that I'm I'm only here for university. But I I remember the, very distinctly the fear that um, when I was going back to Sudan for winter break and for summer. I was I was scared. I was definitely worried at the airport and so were my parents because of the fact that visibility really makes you um a target especially because I don't have any other citizenship so I'm only Sudanese and no other government is going to protect me if the Sudanese government decides that they want um to to do anything to me. I I wasn't doing much I I'd, at least like that's what I th- I thought I wasn't doing enough for them to consider me someone who's worth going the hassle of of doing anything to but then again, they, they do things very arbitrarily and visibility makes you a target. So there was definitely that concern. And I was very worried. Uh, my parents were more worried than me, specifically my father. Um, so anytime I passed through a, a border, so every time I came back to Sudan, there was that. But that was always a risk. They were trying to hack people's phones in 2012 and 2013. You just have to you just have to run that risk, I guess, and be willing to to take what comes with it. But it is very, it's, it's terrifying. I won't pretend it isn't. <laughs>
1: Mm -hmm. And that, yeah, that's a very interesting point. We've spoken about this on on the podcast before, the concept of um, passport privilege and, you know, how, how our world sort of, it privileges based on nationality and how having, you know, a sole nationality or a nationality from a government that is is responsible for grave human rights violations and is not necessarily considered, you know, the top passports to have or the top nationalities to have can be truly a detriment when it comes to moving across borders. Um, and that that's a very interesting perspective, because that's a new point that I think a lot of people don't really think about, that the privilege or nationality grants you to, to be able to engage in activism in the first place, right? So I think, you know, I'd like to tap into that debate. Do you like on whether social media is an effective platform for activism you know there's a lot of people who say it's good for raising awareness but the real activism will happen at a grassroots level or people actually you know going out and doing the work or voting and policy etc what are your thoughts on that on in terms of like is social media actually effective Um, is it effective in certain circumstances
2: is it effective when it's combined with other things I definitely think it's effective. I think it's a tool that people use to drive the momentum of grassroots um, activism. And I think now more than ever, it's how you get people from outside of where you are engaging with what's going on in your country. And I think, and we saw that in Sudan, that played a massive role um, in the revolution, people paying attention to Sudan as well. Um, So I don't think it has to be one or the other. I think especially now we do see this massive shift of social media not only fueling grassroots movements but also starting kind of those uprisings like even there were pockets of the revolution where there was that blackout um, and people couldn't use social media but because they had social media as well like they were from before, they were able to use the tools that they had to organize. Like Dina was talking about, like the neighborhood committees. Um, so I remember when the blackout happened, a lot of people in Sudan were going out and knocking on people's doors that they knew were part of like their hilla and saying, guys, we we have a protest today. Um, and I do think social media played a role in bridging that. So even when social media is non-existent, it still sort of has its roots in organizing to, to a certain degree, I think. Yeah,
0: I absolutely agree. Um, I think you have to remember that like social media is never going to be the end all be all be all end all um and it's 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 very important to recognize that this is not it um but that being said there are stories that i heard on social media that under no other context i would have heard and um even stories from people in the diaspora because of the fact that um that there's there's this misconception that, that those who um that those who are in the diaspora are privileged and that those in the diaspora are rich and, and they got to leave because they are rich when in reality so many of the people in the diaspora are children of refugees and people who had to leave because they they had to leave and um i think that it gave us the opportunity to listen to stories that weren't heard before um but that being said there are there were people who are absolutely off social media and there is work that needs to be done outside of it. But as an organizational tool, I, I can't knock the, the fact that it was incredibly effective and incredibly useful for Sydney's people.
1: I do have to agree. And I think, you know, this period of time with COVID has shown us that, you know, social media is very effective, especially when you're you know stuck at home or in lockdown. I'd like to ask, is there any, you know, one main core point that you would like our listeners just to, to sort of take away from this discussion whether that be about activism and social media, whether that be about Sudan specifically, um, a woman in Sudan, um, anything you'd like our listeners to sort of know and how they can potentially get involved. So, you know, to all those non Sudanese individuals out there or people who may not necessarily know that much about Sudan, how can they sort of get themselves involved in the conversation and start helping
0: to raise awareness to make this more of a global concern? Um I think there's a lot to be learned from from Sudan and what happened in Sudan and um the resolve of the Sudanese youth and how much can be done when you when you do the the work horizontally rather than vertically so working with looking to your side and seeing who's doing the work and partaking um and there's always things that you, we're up we're up against systems that are so evil and so old and and so deeply entrenched into our lives, but there's always work that you can do with your immediate community and I think, I think that's where most people should start. Um, and I think that's the most effective way we can be there for each other.
2: Yeah, I guess also just kind of like Dinan said, she articulated it really well. Just mobilizing um, in your community, mobilizing at home, um, making that a central aspect of how you approach activism.
1: Thank you, ladies, so much for joining us today. And a big thank you to Samani Hajjo for letting us use his music on our podcast. My name is Munagasim, and this was Declarations. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and any other podcast streaming service.